Well, you know, I started this series on the, the love of God about, uh, what, three, four months ago? So in September It's the last time I was able to talk to the men's group because uh, so Sam did it in October and we were off November and December. So I'm back uh, to continue. Uh, I remember uh, Steve mentioning that I was teaching on the love of God, and he says, well, does Dave realize that that's a, that's a lifetime <laughs> to do that? Because it's, it's infinite. His love is infinite. And uh, uh, the more I learn about God's love, uh, uh, the more I'm humbled and the more I appreciate the deep, 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 deep love of God uh, that he has for us and that we should reciprocate. So, you know, uh, last time I talked, I talked about the, the, love, the loving God in the Old Testament. We looked at God has always been a loving God. You know, some people say God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He's a God of love in the New Testament. There's a lot of love in the Old Testament. And we outlined that last time we talked. And we also talked about having the fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. And uh, to balance the love of God, we need to understand also God's holy wrath. Because without understanding God's holy wrath, you can't really understand his, his love. So we went into a little bit of that the last time that we met. And then uh, we talked about that the salvation, of course, is, is of God and only God, the grace of God. And, uh, and then, you know, God's warnings, you know, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 2.3. Uh, for... If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 26-27. That's, to me, the scariest part of Scripture. If we neglect this, this love uh, that God has for us. So today, in, in part two, we'll focus on God is love. And, uh, you know, when you think about, if you ever listen to regular radio, so, uh, they always have songs about love, you know, and it's almost always portrayed as a feeling, usually involving unfulfilled desires. Most love songs describe a, uh, a love as of a longing, a passion, a craving that is never quite satisfied, a set of expectations that are never met. Unfortunately, that sort of love is devoid of ultimate meaning. It actually is a tragic reflection of human lostness. Most love songs not only reduce the love to an emotion, but they make it an involuntary one. People fall in love. They get swept off their feet by love. They can't help themselves. They go crazy for love. One song laments, I'm hooked on a feeling. For us old guys, <laughs> and with another, <laughs> I think I'm going out of my head. <laughs> so you younger guys don't probably don't even know those lines from the songs. <laughs> it may seem like a nice romantic uh, sentiment, but to characterize love is an uncontrollable passion. Uh, but those who think carefully about it will realize that such love is both selfish and irrational. It is far from the biblical concept of love. And that's something that we need to, uh, to understand. Love, according to Scripture, is not a helpless sensation of desire. Rather, it is perf- a, purple, a purpo- purposeful act of self-giving. And I see it every day here in our church of people serving the church and giving of themselves. That's 
a reflection of biblical love. The one who genuinely loves is deliberately devoted to the one loved. True love arises from the will, not from blind emotion. Consider, for example, this description of love from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And we've all heard it, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not ever boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, I, that is like profound, which all scripture is. I mean, it's just when you really stop and contemplate on all those phrases in that short three verses, it's, uh, it's amazing. That kind of love cannot possibly be an emotion that ebbs and flows involuntarily. It is not a mere feeling. At the, all the attributes of love Paul lists involve the mind with volition. We willingly have to do it. In other words, the love he describes is thoughtful, willing commitment. Also notice that love, genuine love does not seek its own. That means I... If I truly love, I'm concerned not with having my desires filled, but with seeking the best for whoever is the object of my love or your love. So the mark of true love is not unbridled desire or wild passion. It is a giving of oneself. Jesus himself understood this when he told his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. If love is a giving of oneself, then the greatest love is shown by laying down of one's very life. And of course, who perfectly modeled that for us? Our Lord and Savior, right? Jesus Christ. Love is at the heart of God's character. The Apostle John has been called the Apostle of Love because he wrote so much on the subject. He was fascinated by it, overwhelmed with the reality that he was loved by God. I tell you, I, I realize I, I'm more fascinated by it every day that I study this. This is just, you know, why me, Lord? And, you know, just cry out to him all the time, why me? He often referred to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He said that many times in, in the book of John. In his first epistle, John wrote, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 8 through 9. Of course, that echoes the familiar passage that we just saw in, the, in one of the videos there, John three sixteen, in which we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look carefully at that simple phrase in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. In what sense is it true that God is love? There are many ways of misunderstanding John's meaning. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 seems to be a particular favorite of cultists. We need to understand that. 
All kinds of false sects from Christian science to the children of God have misapplied this verse to support wildly their heretical notions. The former using it to portray God as a divine principle, love rather than a personality. And the latter using it to justify sexual promiscuity. Promiscuity. It is important that we understand and reject not only these doctrines, but the false ideas of which they are based, lest we be led astray in our own thinking. First, the expression, God is love, is not meant to depersonalize God or portray Him as a force, a sensation, a principle, or some sort of cosmic energy. You know, that's what the Star Wars movies did, right? Let the force be with you. It's not a personalized thing. It's depersonalizing. He is a personal being with all the attributes of personality, volition, feeling, and intellect. In fact, what the apostle is saying is that God's love is the highest expression of his person. Therefore, to use this text to attempt to depersonalize God is to do great violence to the clear meaning of Scripture. Such an interpretation actually turns the text on its head. Second, this verse by no means identifies God with everything our society labels as love. John is not saying that all sorts of emotions called love are from God. The romanticism of goth and much more, the present sexual debauchery, are not from God. In fact, those who cite this verse to attempt attempt to legitimize illicit forms of love are about as far away from the apostles' intent as it is possible to get. The love which he speaks is a pure, holy love, consistent with all the divine attributes. Third, is not meant to be a definition of God or a summary of his attributes. Divine love in no way minimizes or nullifies God's other attributes, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his immutability, his lordship, his righteousness, his wrath against sin, or any of his other glorious perfections. Deny any of them and you have not and you have denied the God of Scripture. There are certainly more to God than love. Similar expressions elsewhere in Scripture demonstrate this. For example, the, the same apostle John who penned these words also wrote, God is spirit. John four twenty-four. We have already noted that Scripture in my last message, God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24, and then Hebrews repeats that in 12.29. And in Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So the simple statement, God is love, obviously does not convey everything that can be known about God. We know from Scripture that he is also holy and righteous and true to his word. God's love does not contradict his holiness. Instead, it complements it and magnifies it and gives it the deepest meaning possible. So we cannot isolate this one phrase from the rest of Scripture and attempt to make love represent the sum of what we know about God. The statement, God is love, is so profound that no less than Augustine saw it as an important evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity. If God is love, that is, if love is intrinsic to his very nature, then he has always loved, 
even from eternity past, before there was any created object for his love. Augustine suggested that this love must have existed between the persons of the Trinity, with the Father loving the Son, and so on. So according to Augustine, the very fact that God is love corroborates the doctrine of the Trinity. Clearly, the love of this text describes an eternal reality. If it flows from the very nature of God, it is not a response to anything outside the person of God. The apostle does not say God is loving, as if he were speaking of one of many divine attributes, but God is love. And if to say that love pervades and influences all his attributes. Remember, the, the, the last time we talked, too, is, you know, we talked about uh, God loves everyone. Sinners that haven't been saved, as well as sinners that have been saved. But there's different degrees of love. And I just want to remind you of that. From the, That was one of my big takeaways from the, the last message. Uh, just like we have different degrees of love for our neighbor or our Christian brothers and sisters or a different love that we have for our children or our spouses or for love of our, our God. It's all different degrees of love. God loves everybody, and we need to remember that. But he's a holy and just God at the same time, and we also have to keep that in the balance. What a wonder it is that he who is a consuming fire, he who is unapproachable light, is also the personification of love. He postpones his judgments against sin while pleading with sinners to repent. He freely offers mercy to all who will repent. He shows long-suffering and goodness even to many who steal their hearts against him. Divine love not only keeps divine wrath in check, while God appeals to the sinner, but it also proves that God is just when he finally does condemn. And even when he condemns, God is love. Our God, therefore, shows himself to be not only glorious, but also good. Not only spotlessly holy, but also wondrously compassionate. Not only righteous, but also God of matchless love. And that love emanates from his very essence. things that we get from John's uh, passage uh, in John 4, 1 John 4, you know, 7 through 10, basically. Everyone who loves is born of God, knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. From, that tr- from the truth that God is love, the apostle draws this corollary. Love is from God in 1 John 4, 7. God is the source of all true love. Love is therefore the best evidence that a person truly knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, verses 7 and 8. In other words, love is the proof of a regenerate heart. Only true Christians are capable of genuine love. Say that to somebody that's not in the church and see what kind of response he gets. In fact, the apostle employed a Greek word for love that was highly unusual in the first century. The word was agape, not a common word until the New Testament made it so. 
When a typical first century pagan thought of love, agape was not the word that came to mind. In fact, there were two other common Greek words for love, phileo, to describe brotherly love, and eros, to describe everything from manic love to sexual passion. Phileo is occasionally used as a synonym for agape, but generally the word agape is used as more refined and elevated term in the sense that John uses it here, agape is unique to God. He is the source of it. Love for one's family, romantic love, and the love of good friends all fall into the category of what Scripture calls natural affections in Romans in 131 and 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. Even these respect, expressions of natural affection or human love can be marvelously rich. They fill life with color and joy that we all enjoy. There are, for, however, merely pale reflections of the images of God in his creatures. His love is perfect love. It is that pure, holy, godly love which can be known only by those who are born of him. It is the same unfathomable love that moved God to send, send his only son into the world so that we might love through him. 1 John 4, 9. All true believers have this love. All who have it are true believers. This kind of love cannot be conjured up by human will. It is wrought in the hearts of believers by God himself. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Love for God and love for fellow believers is an inevitable result of the new birth by which we become partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. Just as it is God's nature to love, love is characteristic of his true children. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. I mean, that emphatically says, God has given us our love when, we, when he saved us. God love, godly love, therefore, is one of the most important tests of the reality of one's faith. The one who does not love does not know God. It's important to understand the the context of John's first epistle. What John is trying to convey in his writing is about the assurance of salvation and outlining several practical doctrinal tests that either demonstrate or disprove the genuineness of one's salvation. And those of you who went through the Bible study of 1 John on Wednesday nights know that these are, are pretty convicting tests and uh, we'll go into a couple of them. John is writing to help struggling believers gain assurance. He says so in 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, isn't it nice to know that these apostles wrote to us today even, so that we would know that we have eternal life, that they took the time to write this down for us, to give us that assurance. People that walked with Jesus Christ took that time. But along the way, he has a secondary purpose, and that is to destroy the false assurance of those who may profess faith in Christ without really knowing him. 
Therefore, he writes such things as this in 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, verse 9. Here he makes godly love a kind of a litmus test for the true Christian. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, verse, chapter 4, verse 8. With regard to that statement, Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, John does not put this merely as an exhortation. He puts it in such a way that it becomes desperately serious manner, and I almost tremble as I proclaim this doctrine. There are people who are unloving, unkind, always criticizing, whispering, backbiting, pleased when they hear something against another Christian. Oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them as I think of them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming they are not born of God. They are outside the life of God. And I repeat, there is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to him. Sadly, most of us encounter professing Christians whose hearts seem devoid of genuine love. The Apostle John's admonition is a solemn reminder that a mere pretension of faith in Christ is worthless. Genuine faith will inevitably be shown by love. After all, real faith works through love, Galatians 5, 6. This sort of God-given love is not easily counterfeited. Look at all that's involved. Love for God himself, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Love for the brethren, 1 John 3, 14. These are in your notes. Love of truth and righteousness, Romans 6, 17 through 18. Love for the word of God, Psalm 1, 2. And even love for one's enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Such love is contrary to human nature. It is antithetical to our natural selfishness. The very thought of loving those things is odious to the sinful heart. And we see this in our society today. Later in this same chapter, the apostle writes, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, 1 John 4, 16. Again, making the godly kind of love the mark of genuine faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave us 10 simple tests to know. So if we can pass these around real quick. Well, I'll just walk through them for people that are listening on audio. But this is something that you can go home and, with your own study to uh, to test. So we're, we're not going to ask anybody to raise their hands and give answers to this test right now. <laughs> but John MacArthur took this from Martin Lloyd's uh, uh, commentary on 1 John, and he paraphrased it and added scriptural references for these 10 tests. Question number one, is there a loss of the sense that God is against me? Romans 5.1 and 8.31. 
So you, want to, you may want to look that up later and see what those verses say. Is there a loss of craven fear of God and a corresponding increase in godly fear? 1 John 4.18 and Hebrews 12.28. Do I sense the love of God for me? 1 John 4.16. Do I know that my sins are forgiven? Romans 4, 7 through 8. Do I have a sense of gratitude to God? Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Do I have an increasing hatred for sin? Romans 7, 15 through 16. Do I desire to please God and live a holy life? John 14, 21. 1 John 2, 5 through 6. Is there a desire to know God better and draw near to him? Philippians 3.10 Is there a conscious regret that my love for him is less than what it ought to be? Philippians 1.9-10 That's a convicting one for me for sure. Is there a sense of delight in hearing about God and the things of God? Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Suppose you fail the test. How can you know the love of God? In Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, you need not start traveling the mystic way, which some people do. You need not try to work up feelings. There is only one thing you can do and face God, see yourself as a sinner, and see Christ as your Savior. I ask for forgiveness. The cross is the consummate proof of divine love. I think we saw that in the songs we just sang. The cross is the consummate proof of divine love. Let's now take a fresh look at that text again. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 8 through 9. We would not be doing justice to this verse if we limited our discussion of divine love in abstract forms or terms. The love of God is not merely a subjective thing in itself. It is a dynamic, active, vibrant, and powerful. God has manifested his love or displayed it in a particular act that can be examined objectively. In other words, Scripture does not merely say God is love and leave it to the individual to interpret subjectively what it means. There is a very important doctrinal context in which the love of God is explained and illustrated. To affirm that God is love while denying the doctrine underlying and defining that truth is to render the truth itself meaningless. But that is precisely what many have done. For example, our adversaries, the theological liberals, are very keen to affirm that God is love, yet they often flatly deny the significance of Christ's substitutionary atonement. They suggest that because God is love, Christ did not actually need to die as a substitutionary sacrifice to turn away the divine wrath from sinners. They portray God as easy to pacify, and they characterize the death of Christ as an act of martyrdom or moral or a moral example for believers, denying that it was God's own wrath that needed to be propitiated through a blood sacrifice. 
and denying that he purposely gave his son in order to make such an atonement. You hear about child abuse, some of these guys that preach this stuff. Thus they reject the consummate manifestation of God's love, even while attempting to make divine love the centerpiece of their system. John MacArthur noted he commonly encounters people who think this way, that because God is love, theology doesn't matter. I attended a church that was this way. A young man recently wrote him a letter that said, Do you really think God is concerned about all the points of doctrine that divide Christians? How much better would it be to forget all the doctrinal difference and just show the world the love of God? That's all we need to do, show the world the love of God. But that is, position is untenable because many who call themselves Christians are deceivers. For that reason, the Apostle John began the, began the chapter from which our text is taken with these words in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And since an important body of doctrine underlies what Scripture teaches about divine love, it is a fallacy to think of divine love and sound theology as any way opposed to each other. Indeed, such thinking, focusing on God is love, has been the predominant mood in popular thinking in much of organized religion since the early 1900s. Martin Lloyd-Jones went in his commentary and pointed out, people who thus put up as apostle, put up as opposites the idea God is love and these basic fundamental doctrines in the last analysis can know nothing about because 1 John 4, 8 makes it clear. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. So people that profess this, that you can separate God's love from his doctrine, they don't know God because they don't love God. And they're a false prophet. Indeed, looking at these verses again, we discover that the apostle explains the love of God in terms of sacrifice, atonement for sin, and propitiation, appeasing God's wrath. John 4.10, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation speaks of a sacrifice designed to turn away the wrath of an offended deity. What the apostle is saying is that God gave his son as an offering for sin to satisfy his own wrath and justice in the salvation of sinners. This is the very heart of the gospel. The good news is not that God is willing to overlook sin and forgive sinners, that would compromise God's holiness. That would leave justice unfulfilled. That would trample on true righteousness. Furthermore, that would not be love on God's part, but apathy. The real good news is that God himself, through the sacrifice of his son, paid the price of our sins. He took the initiative. Not that we love God, but he loved us. He was not responding to anything in the sinners that made them worthy of his grace. On the contrary, his love was altogether undeserved by sinful humanity. The sinners for whom Christ died were worthy of nothing but his wrath. 
And for people that you're witnessing to, think of the alternative. If you do not turn to God, you will see the wrath of God forever, eternally in hell. What a better alternative than to put your faith and trust in God who paid for our sins. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6 through 8, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to die for us. Because God is righteous, he must punish sin. He cannot simply absolve guilt and leaving justice unsatisfied. But the death of Christ totally satisfied God's justice, his righteousness, and his holy hatred of sin. Some people recoil at the thought of an innocent victim making atonement for guilty sinners. They like the idea that people should pay for their own sins. And the ones that you know, we just mentioned that don't come to God will pay for their own sins in hell forever. It doesn't stop. But take away the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and you have no gospel. It's not there. If the death of Christ was anything less than a guilt offering for sinners, no one could ever be saved. But in Christ's death on the cross, there is the highest possible expression of divine love. He who is love sent his precious son to die as an atonement for sin. If your sense of fair play is outraged, outraged by that, John MacArthur says, good. It ought to be shocking. It ought to be astonishing. It ought to stagger you. Think it through, and you will begin to get a picture of the enormity of the price God paid to manifest his love to us. The cross of Christ also gives the most complete, accurate perspective of the balance between God's love and his wrath. At the cross, his love shown to sinful humanity, fallen creatures who have no rightful claim on his goodness, his mercy, or his love. And his wrath is poured out on his beloved son who had done nothing worthy of any kind of punishment. If you're not awestruck by that, then you don't yet understand it. If you catch a glimpse of this truth, however, your thoughts of God as a loving father will take on a whole new depth and richness. Putting a few verses together, Romans 5, 8, 1 John 4, 8 and 9, God is love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That is the very heart of the gospel. And it holds forth the only hope to those in bondage to their sin. sin. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the men who could be here today, and we pray for those who couldn't make it today. And we thank you for your love, your deep, deep, deep love that we can never fully appreciate until we're at the throne. But we thank you for the sacrifice 
the, the provision or the propitiation that you made for us to satisfy your wrath, but at the same time show your love for us. And we thank you for your grace. We don't know why you picked us, but we thank you. We love you for it, and we'll love you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.